Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi Woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so excited to welcome Siraj Patel to the show. Siraj is an attorney, business leader, and lecturer on business ethics at New York University in New York City. Siraj is a first-generation American and was born to parents who immigrated to this country from India in the late 1960s. He earned his BA in political science from Stanford University and went on to pursue an MPP from Cambridge University and his Juris Doctorate from NYU School of Law. Siraj previously worked in President Barack Obama's administration, and he is running for a congressional seat to represent New York's 12th district, and he's intent upon being the embodiment of bold, progressive leadership. Siraj, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, we are so very excited to welcome you. And, you know, I always like to start off my interviews with guests, many of whom are immigrants to this country or descendants of recent immigrants, about how those roots inform you as a human being and thought leader. And I know your parents came to this country from India in the late 60s and were small town farmers in India seeking opportunity elsewhere. And as you've offered in other interviews, you fit three generations of your family in a two-bedroom apartment over the bodega you were running. Your dad got a job working the night shift fixing subway tracks and eventually started a family business in hospitality. But you grew up bussing tables, filling vending machines, doing motel laundry, and even helping out on construction sites. And, and you've stated previously in other interviews, together as a family, you lived the American dream. But when the financial crisis hit in 2007-2008, the business that your parents had spent their entire lives building was in peril. And so you were called upon to step up and guide your family's hospitality company through immense financial hardship and back to grow. And so you really know firsthand what it's like to make payroll when times are tough. And an empty storefront, something unfortunately we've seen all too often since the pandemic, are not pithy political talking points to you. They're reminiscent of deeply personal experiences. So I have offered a lot right there. But if you could expand further for us on how these challenges as the son of immigrants is truly a foundation for who you are as a human being and an aspiring legislator of New York's 12th district, that would be very appreciated. Yeah, I mean, thanks. Yeah, that, that, that was quite the summation of a biography there. But no, the truth is that, you know, this country needs a new generation of leaders and, and those leaders need to be able to face 21st century problems with new 21st century solutions. We're seeing what's happening right now with Russia invading Ukraine. It's just the latest attack on democracy writ large, but we've been seeing it for a long time with rising inequality, misinformation, the rise of big tech. You know, and frankly, physical assaults on our democracy from January 6th and onwards. And these problems are new. 
And the kinds of people we need in office also need to be new and have had different life experiences. And long story short, very few people in Congress right now have had the life experience you just described. Being a first generation American, living through, you know, almost every single income bracket in this country and being able to find and live our own American dream, I believe in it, you know, and I think that we need to make sure it's more accessible to more people. And so that's why I'm running for Congress. I think I've had the shared lived experiences of the vast majority of people in my district and in New York City and in the country, so much more so than, say, a 28-year incumbent who's been in office and who's been in Washington, D.C., insulated from the real world for four decades now. Well, I think that's also very true. And as I, my full-time role is at a Fortune 50, and so I'm very far removed from the political landscape. But as I research for podcasts and speak to folks like yourself, boy, everything you just said, it couldn't be more true. You have those experiences that many Americans are facing today as a first-generation immigrant. And that is why I really wanted to offer a nice depiction of how you came to be in this country. And, you know, in 2020, you challenged incumbent Carolyn Maloney and came within three points of victory. And even in the midst of a pandemic, your campaign drove record turnout and brought a 30-year incumbent down to 42% of the vote. Now, you made the bold choice to run again because you feel strongly that, as you just indicated, democracy is under attack in this country. And for anyone that had any doubts, look no further than Russia and Ukraine, as you pointed out, not to mention other spots around the world. But in fact, this year, you offer that you were gerrymandered out of your own district by half a block in the East Village, which you assert seems a bit too convenient to be coincidence, or as you state, you like voters to choose their politicians, not for politicians to choose their voters. And that is why you are running again to represent New York's 12th district. Now, I have some very specific policy and agenda questions coming up for you as we move forward in this conversation. But anything else you want to add about that? Because what I've just offered is very compelling and how fighting for the city you love is really what's keeping you motivated in this campaign. Yeah, look, I think that, you know, as an attorney, as a person who's taught continuing legal education around gerrymandering and voting rights, I think, uh, like I said, politicians shouldn't be able to choose their voters. Voters should choose their politicians. And when the New York Times reported that Representative Maloney specifically proposed a plan to exclude young and Latino voters from her district, I think that that's really telling rather than try and win their votes, cutting them out is something we typically expect Republicans to do. And I find it defensive. So I, I think that that's a live issue in this race. But no, with democracy under attack, like I said, now is the time of like Democrats who are ready to, to defend it at all costs, in, including when it's inconvenient. Well, Suraj, for listeners who may not be aware of you and your candidacy and background, and I offered a bit about how you came to be in this country, as I offered in the intro and introducing you, some stellar, some of the finest academic institutions in this country, including Stanford, Cambridge, NYU, to name a few in your credentials. But you also are a former advisor to President Barack Obama. You're an ethics professor at NYU, a lawyer and an activist, and you are intent upon shaking up the status quo of New York's government by igniting a fire under politicians to inspire them to fight for real change. You would really prioritize affordable, accessible housing and quality transportation 
And even more important, in my estimation, as a non-New Yorker, you are an accurate representation and the embodiment of the district's diversity. And so protecting immigrant populations from unconstitutional bans, raids, and deportations would also feature prominently in your legislative agenda. And I interviewed recently Shekhar Krishnan, who made history as the first South Asian to be elected to New York City Council. And I have to really offer the observation that But for candidates like yourself, with the diverse life experiences and immigrant roots we just touched upon, how in the world would these complex issues for other immigrant populations possibly get addressed? And I would also add that an ethics professor, what a novel idea to integrate that into politics, not an adjective typically used in the same sentence as politics. But if you could expand upon all that and how the status quo is just simply not serving New Yorkers anymore and how you would ensure the critical work really gets done for the betterment of constituents and communities. Yeah, look, I don't come from the Democratic machine here in New York. I don't come from any machine. I think that for too long, we haven't had competition here in politics, and very few people would challenge these incumbents. I think it's really important and incumbent upon us, I think, to to hold these people's feet to the fire with competition. And that's the kind of thing that I think leads to better representation altogether, which is what the lighting of fire was all about. But no, I don't take corporate PAC money. I don't, you know, I'm not beholden to anyone besides the voters of this district. I think that's how it should be. Well, and I have some deeper questions on that topic actually right now. And so I alluded a bit about my background, which is far removed from politics. But I have to say in doing these interviews with candidates like yourself or others who are running for office at the local, state and federal level, it's been very eye opening and illuminating for me about the insidious connection between money and politics. And the reason this especially intersects with our diaspora and its political aspirations or other immigrants and descendants of immigrants who are interested in running, but you know, have no political ties, connections, or family legacies to speak of in the political landscape in this country. We just got here. And so it's the issue that many incumbents with those connections or the right last name do have access to capital. And you know, on a related note, I know you're adamant, you just referenced it, about refusing to take corporate PAC money. And I mentioned you teach business ethics at NYU. So I think your thoughts on this topic are even more helpful in shedding light upon this issue and the conflicts therein. But in a nutshell, as you've offered in other interviews, it's an ethical dilemma for politicians to take corporate PAC money from the same companies they're regulating as legislators. I don't think many voters are tuned into this, um, to this concept, to the fact that it happens. It happens every day, all day long in this country. And in a past interview, you gave an example of a current legislator in New York who has been accepting corporate PAC money from Wall Street, from the very same banks that she regulates. And I'm sure this is not an isolated example, but rather quite prevalent nationally. So again, welcome your thoughts on this. Yeah, look, I think that people shouldn't be able to regulate, shouldn't be tasked with taking money from or regulating companies that they take money from. I actually don't think companies should be able to contribute to political campaigns in the first place because, you know, what's the point? They don't use our schools. They don't uh, breathe our air. They don't drink our water. And I don't understand why they'd be given a voice in the political process when people who are, you know, shareholders or whatever could, can on their own. So that's just a fundamental difference between me and, and, and incumbents, period. And I think I lament Citizens United and its opening up of the spigot of money into campaigns, unregulated. But if we're against it, which ostensibly all Democrats are, then 
you should put your money where your mouth is and not accept it. Well, no, I think that's very compelling. And you know, one of the keynote agenda items on your platform, which can be found on your site, www.sarajpatel.nyc, which I will, I will have a link to in the podcast notes, pertains to the Family Opportunity Guarantee. Now, this proposal is very noteworthy and a significant shift in budget priorities, as currently only 10% of the federal budget is spent on children which is really staggering, and I'm really glad that you outlined that statistic on your site. You make the point on your campaign site, and I would wholly agree with it, if the fundamental promise of America is that every child should be able to achieve their full potential, then legislative policies that help families with children not just survive but thrive are truly essential. And and yet, as we just noted, 10%, that's it, of the federal budget is allocated to that. So you make a really compelling point that the U.S. poverty rate for children is a moral disgrace and an economic drag. However, conceptually speaking, ending childhood poverty is not so hard as long as policy prescriptions are implemented. And I'm going to outline really in broad terms some of the key areas of this family opportunity guarantee, and then I would like you to elaborate on it further, but it includes paid family and medical leave. Medicare for children, a public option for childcare, nationwide universal pre-K, and one of the cornerstones of this proposal, which is a universal child dividend, which would allocate $500 per child per month for ages 0 to 5 and $350 per child per month ages 6 to 17. And in your estimation, the universal child dividend would basically consolidate programs we've seen, which have had an amazing effect, by the way, on poverty in this country, such as the child tax credit, child and dependent care credit, and children's portion of the earned income tax credit into a single cash allowance paid out monthly by the Social Security Administration. So that is absolutely revolutionary, and I would just love for you to expand on it further. Well, look, I, I think that you've outlined the policy in detail, so I don't really need to re-elaborate re on it. But look, you know, a country that is focused on the future, invests in its children, and a country that, that only invests 10% of its federal budget on children is not focused on the future. And I think we have to fundamentally change that. The benefits of eliminating child poverty well over, or the benefits of, frankly, spending money on children well overpay for themselves over time. There's a recent study that said that for every $1 invested in Childcare, early childhood education, and reducing child poverty benefits down line are sixfold from the better literacy rates and health outcomes to lower incarceration rates and things like that. And so it's not really spending, it's investing, it's an investment. And, and I think that's why we, like I said, need new leaders who are focused on the future, not necessarily just on the past. Absolutely. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and another one of your key policy initiatives entitled the Discovery Project. And yes, I will outline some of it so that you don't have to necessarily belabor the minutia of it, but it's basically an initiative that's based upon the premise that America's drive to invest in education, science, and technological development laid the foundation for rapid, broad-based growth that was really the envy of the world. And, and you assert that the floor level of federal federal spending on R&D should be set to 2% of GDP. You'd really push to increase funding for federal research agencies like the National Science Foundation 
and provide states with grants to create a public option for broadband, makerspaces, and hackerspaces, and even advanced technological education centers. So if you could sort of elaborate on that a bit, or a bit, and then I did want to ask you about the discovery hubs that you're proposing. Yeah, look, I think the similar theme of focusing on the future and having, you know, we have grand problems and humanities always tended to innovate their way out of it rather than retroactively solve. And I think that discovery, we named it this for a specific reason, it isn't with a specific aim in mind, you know, the federal budget for research and development at its height was 2.9% of GDP back during the space race. And today it's less than half that. And I wrote this project long before pandemic even started. And I said to prevent future pandemics, we need basic genomics research. We need research and development. And, and that's, I think, what we're seeing now. You know, Operation Warp Speed proved that you can, you can inure a lot of benefit from uh, massive investments in research and development that are owned by the public. I think we have to do that for climate, we have to do that for energy security and, and pandemics. I think that's really all so innovative because, as I mentioned before, you'd allocate $100 billion in grants to create discovery hubs across the U.S. And, and these hubs would be targeted towards solving big issues like climate change, climate adaptation, pandemic preparedness, crop failure, and, and a number of other things. And the underlying theme of this agenda, which I really think is so compelling and Look, I, we don't need to talk about party here, but this isn't something that I would have expected. I hear this sometimes from, you know, the Republican Party, but this is so amazing and compelling. You assert it's time to get America on the forefront of solving existential issues like climate change, pandemics, biodiversity loss, and other unknowns that can change the course of humanity. We don't need to look any further than, than the pandemic. But you also call out the fact that public spending on research and development is really at historically low levels. And, and now more than ever, new discoveries are still being made. So I guess you're basically saying, bring this back to the United States, invest in this. And I think this will really resonate profoundly with listeners, but anything else you want to add? I know. I think that, like I said, I think you've covered it while reading it, but I, I, I do believe that, you know, being able to both sell this as an idea requires us to inure the benefits widely. And that's what the discovery hubs are about. It's about not just concentrating research and development in a few places and in a few cities, but everywhere. Well, definitely. No question about that. Well, we talked briefly about housing, but I do want to point out that, you know, you're very candid in, in offering that New York City's housing crisis is really threatening the unique nature and character of the city. And its affordability or lack thereof really poses a, a threat to low and middle income New Yorkers. And in fact, it was surprising to me that more than half of the city's renters allocate more than 30% of their income to housing. And this situation really is only worsening, but I wanted to see what your thoughts on how uh, we could solve this issue potentially. I mean, I think that we have a housing crisis across the country. Some of our biggest cities are unaffordable to most, um, or at least 30, 40% of the population. And working class folks have no options. It's part of why homelessness is on the rise to the highest level since the Great Depression here in New York. So I think we need to solve this by uh, more housing of all kinds, more housing at market rate, more housing public, more housing affordable, and to you know change outdated zoning laws to allow more density and high density 
uh, high opportunity neighborhoods. That's what we have to do. Well, I really appreciate that response. And, you know, I think I can't believe we're moving towards the end of our questions here, but I couldn't let this podcast go by without touching upon the issue of crime. And, you know, in researching for this podcast, I just want to offer the following statistics. Since January of 2022, every major crime index category in New York saw an increase with the exception of murder which fell by 15.2%, but robbery increased by 33.1%, and and grand larceny increased by 58.1%. Citywide shooting incidents increased by 31.6%. And this is in January 2022 compared with the same period last year. Now, those are pretty alarming statistics, but I want to counter with something you wrote in Not Bad about this issue of crime and our country's approach to it. And you state, the United States represent 5% of the world's population and over 20% of its prison population, rivaling only Russia and South Africa for this dishonor. Tragically, we also represent one-third of the total of the world's life sentence prison population. And New York alone has over 51,000 people under correctional supervision. Now, this was dated to 2018, so I suspect that number might be higher now. But this over-incarceration really reflects a stunning disregard for human potential, for rehabilitation, and for second chances. And and you offer that all too often, our criminal justice system's outcomes are, are plagued by systemic bias and criminalization of poverty. And I did hear a bit about this from Shaker Krishnan, where we have this school-to-prison pipeline, in his estimation. You also offer cash bails is assigned based on charge rather than the ability to pay. This really forces many people to spend time in jail when they're awaiting trial. These are all things that many of us as voters are literally not aware of. And so I just want to see what your thoughts are in, in the face of, of those rising statistics and at the same time challenged by all those um, topics that you wrote in your op-ed over incarceration. Yeah, look, I, I think that there's this is not either or issue. You know, the deterrence of a crime can be accomplished by the probability of getting caught multiplied by the magnitude of the punishment. Starting in the 1970s, this country started focusing on increasing the magnitude of punishments for crime as a way to deter them. What we haven't done is focus on catching criminals and solving crimes so that you would be surprised to know that only 45% of homicides in New York City are ever solved. 45%. So I would argue that in order to deter people from committing crime, we should catch them more often rather than lock them away for multiple life sentences because frankly, you know, one life sentence is sufficient, for example. You know, and so I support the Victim Act, which is a uh, federal program to provide grants to police departments across the country to hire more detectives, detectives solving crime rather than, you know, rather than ratcheting up punishments. So we can fight crime and solve more of it and deter more of it. Same time, you know, this is a crisis of opportunity. The city has a 9% unemployment rate. We've got record storefront vacancies coming out of covid we need to make sure that we have pro-growth policies in place to create jobs, to create opportunity, and therefore to reduce crime. 
Wow, I've never heard anyone offer the data point that you did about the number of unsolved murders and not just that, hiring more detectives. I mean, really, really um, stunning information there. And, you know, I, I may have you back again just to explore that topic in, in further depth. But wow, amazing, amazing and, and really compelling points. Yes. Now, I can't believe we are at the end of our time together here, but as you move forward through this campaign, please let me know, what are you most looking forward to? What are your next steps? And what can someone do if they want to get involved and listening to this podcast, want to support you in any way? Obviously, I'm going to have a link to your site in the podcast notes. Yeah, that sounds great. So, you know, please go to our website. We'd love to have your support if you're interested. But yeah. Awesome. Well, Suraj, we cannot thank you enough for joining us today. Really appreciate it. And we will be watching. Can't wait. Okay. Sounds great.